on everybody's lips. Yeah, their chapped lips. On their chapped lips, chapped right. Lips. Do you think Phil's gonna come out and see a shadow? Punks a Tony Phil. That's right, Woodchuck Chuckers. It's Groundhog Day! <laughs> Welcome once again to The Cinephiles, where each week we enter the world of a great film. We explore its themes, the history, the filmmaking, and the influence it has on us today. My name is Steve Morris. I'm a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California. Hello, everyone. My name is John Roca. I'm a writer, producer, host, and voiceover guy here in San Diego, California. And uh, I have been fighting off an illness for the last few days. So if my voice sounds a little weird and strange, I apologize ahead of time. Um, but uh, I was very excited to dive into this movie with Steve, so I couldn't resist uh, being somewhat uh, uh, medicined up in order to be able to record the episode today. So I'm looking forward to it. And this movie, I think the idea of doing it first came up with our advisory board mm. at one of our meetings. And we both went, yeah, that's a great movie. And obviously we should do that movie on February 2nd on Groundhog Day. But the thing is, we're going to be busy with other stuff because yeah. we have our upcoming deep dive into a director, which I don't know, John, do you think we should announce that right here? I mean, no, no one knows at this point. <laughs> we we were talking about announcing it on our live show, but then the live yeah. show didn't happen because, you know, we had some issues that popped up. True, true. So maybe now would be a good time. What do you think? Sure, let's do it. We This was, you know, every year we put out a survey. In fact, there's another survey that's going to be coming out very soon. Asks yeah. all sorts of questions about what you would like to see in the following year. And one of the questions is, which director would you like us to do a deep dive on? And one of the questions is, which of our early movies would you like us to redo? And one of the questions was, which of our 2013 movies would you like us to do first? And the answer to all of those questions were the same director. It yeah. was... The movie from 2013 they wanted us to do first was Wolf of Wall Street. The movie that our fans most want us to redo is Goodfellas. And therefore, the director we are doing a deep dive on coming up very soon is Martin Scorsese. Yeah, can't wait to dive into that. This is cinema. I can't wait to dive into Scorsese, who's been a lightning rod recently for a number of reasons. Certainly with Killers of the Flyer Moon coming out and then his opinions on superhero films and cinema and all of that. So certainly... A lightning rod of controversy, but also an incredibly um, gifted, talented, and legendary filmmaker. So we, uh, directing uh, movies from multiple uh, genres and multiple types of films. So it's going to be real interesting to dive into him and then uh, see the movies that we're going to cover during our months of Scorsese. Yeah. And all of which is the reason that we are not doing this film on February 2nd. Yes. But instead, we are jumping in today to Groundhog Day. Yeah. John, do you remember how you first came to the film? Yeah, um I'm sh I saw it with my family back in the late early 90s. Maybe one of the last family films I went to. You know, there was a period in the early 90s where I would still <clears throat> go see films with my family and whatever and uh, this was one that I definitely wanted to take my dad, mom and uh, brother and sister too and uh, i just remember us sitting there in dale cinema or uh, amc dale cinema watching it and just having a ball with this film and having so much fun laughing through it and enjoying bill murray again i did not see it in the theater i remember mm -hmm. renting it on vhs and sitting and watching it with karen in our apartment in lafayette california and and absolutely loving it and i watched mm -hmm. it a ton and I, I know this is like i say this all the time because i hadn't seen it in a long time what struck me watching this time, 
I remembered it so well. I remembered yeah. almost everything that was going to happen. Yeah. But what in my mind, it was a much, and I don't mean this as an insult in my mind, I remembered it much more as a comedy and much mm. just funnier and yeah. watching it this last time I was like, there's a lot in this movie. Like I was very stressed oh, yeah. out at certain points and it yeah. was less funny, but maybe it was even better watching it this time. You know, one of the great things about revisiting a film like this, which have, by the way, has grown in estimation in a lot of ways, because it's in the national library of Congress. It's in the national film registry. It's uh, some screenwriters have called this, I think the greatest film, uh, I think it was William Goldman who said it was the greatest film since 1982, uh, since 1982's Tootsie at the time. Um, and so what is fascinating about the movie now, because Steve and I are older farts. And so for us, <laughs> the world is much more of a reflective, contemplative place. We can still have our funds or fun rather with Animal House and these kinds of films, uh, which who knows if we'll ever do that on the cinephiles, but we can have our fun. But with films that have maybe a hidden meaning or a hidden um, uh, philo philosophical approach to them, uh, Steve and I will pick it out more often than not. And I had the same feeling, Steve, watching it as you this time around. It's like, the comedy is fun, but what is it really saying? And never in my mind, in my life when I've seen this film, I've ever thought, oh, I think he's stuck in purgatory. And then I did some research on the film, and I found that the screenwriter here, uh, his last name is Ruben, he apparently has maintained years-long correspondence with priests, um, rabbis, ph uh, philosophers, um, people who write about uh, pop culture and social culture, about this movie and about the hidden meanings of this movie and what it represents. It, it's, it, 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 he, it, he's talked about J Judaism. People have uh, reached out to him to speak about Judaism and mitzvahs, people have, for who are Buddhists have reached out to speak to him about what Bill Murray represents. Christians, same thing, claiming purgatory or claiming that the groundhog is Christ and he's going through this journey of redemption to, in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. And then other philosophers talk about this idea of how it just simply is a commentary about how some of us feel in our lives that we're repeating the same beats over and over and over again oh, with yeah. a desperate desire to escape. So there's so much more going on in the film than you initially would think, Steve, uh, when you look at it the first time, it's just a comedy. It's funny that you mentioned that because Harold Ramis has basically the exact same story. After he made the movie, he was approached by yogis and Hindus and psychiatrists and Hasidic Jews and all sorts of people all <laughs> coming to him going, you're obviously one of us. You're obvious. You must have studied Buddhism in order to have made this film, you know, and I, I, I just speaks to something about what this movie is. Because I really did have it in my brain of that was a really funny comedy with Bill yeah. Murray. And not that I didn't recognize that there was that right. he was going through things, but I, I was genuinely like stressed out watching parts of this film. It was I was like, why is this movie difficult? You know, <laughs> um, here's a bit of pre-production. As you mentioned, the writer is Danny Rubin. Here's where the idea came from. He was working at a movie theater in L.A. He had come here to be a screenwriter and he was reading. And so because he's working in a movie theater in L.A., he has seen the beginning of the same movie over and over and over again. <laughs> and he's reading Anne Rice's book, uh, Vampire Lestat. And he started yeah. thinking about immortality and he started thinking, man, you would really have to reckon with a lot to be immortal. Like you'd have to go through a lot. And what would be the stages? And so first he started to write a movie that took place over a thousand years you know, with an immortal. And then as he's writing, he went, man, the budget of this movie is going to be really big because you got to have all these different eras and costumes. And he went, how could I do a movie about immortality with a small budget? 
And then he thought about seeing the beginning of the movie over and over and over again. And that's how he came up with this concept. And I think just the concept alone is just incredibly brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. And you know, now this film has become what people, a, 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 the title of the film has become in essence, a uh, connective uh, or a description of any kind of piece of media that talks about repeating things over and over again or time travel or what have you. So um, that tells you its impact overall for people who watch this movie. Well, and, and you want to know how he picked Groundhog Day? He, he looked, <laughs> I think I know, but please go ahead. Yeah. He, he, he looked at the calendar to see what the next holiday was, and it was Groundhog Day. And he went, that works, and found out a little bit about Punxsutawney and Punxsutawney Phil. And one of the things he was thinking about, and maybe you read this too, was It's a Wonderful Life. Was He was yeah. thinking about that small town world, yeah. and that really, and that's where this movie comes from. And I'd like to make a case that although this is a Groundhog Day film, it feels very much like a Christmas film. The snow aspect of it all, redemption, um, coming to terms with your own mortality, learning to appreciate the gifts that every single human being has, not blowing them off in mass, but actually taking the time to get to know people, to care about people, helping a homeless person to find warmth and comfort. Like there's so much throughout the movie, once he learns how to be a better person, that are lessons that all of us need to learn during, or all of us need to be reminded of at Christmas about appreciating your fellow human, you know? And so I thought there, as I was watching, I was like, yeah, it's Groundhog Day, but it has very similar Christmas themes. And so when you bring up It's a Wonderful Life, it makes all the sense in the world. I had the same thought. I literally had the same thought of like, this feels like a Christmas movie, yeah. which is funny because we've just been knee deep in Christmas movies, <laughs> you know, and re-releasing all of our old ones and doing two pre- previous Christmas movies. So we've yeah. been doing it a lot. Yeah. Um, so uh, Hollywood, it sounds like this script went around and it got kind of confused reactions from most of Hollywood. And then uh, Harold Ramis's producing partner, Trevor Albert, read it and he said, you got to read it. And Ramis didn't heard what the idea was, was really against it. And his producer insisted. And then he read it and really, really got it. Um, and he did rewrites with working with Danny Rubin, Harold Ramis and Danny Rubin together. Then it sounds like the studio said, Harold, can you do a rewrite on your own without this Rubin guy? And so he did another one on his own that he did another one with Rubin. And the biggest change is when the, when they got the script, the original script started right in the repetitions. Yeah. It started in the middle of the time loop. And there was voiceover explaining why this guy knew everything about this town. And Ramus went to Danny Rubin and said, I'll tell you one thing. We are never changing that. We are absolutely going to start right in the middle with the voiceover, just like you do. And the first chance he had when he was rewriting the script, that's the first thing he changed. <laughs> that's what it sounds like. Yeah, I mean, reading the history of the script of this thing is just, it's maniacal, to be honest with you. Reading how many times Ruben and Ramus rewrote it, then Ramus doing his own thing. Then apparently Ramus sent Ruben off with Murray because Murray was having issues with the film because Bill Murray wanted the film to be more serious, more philosophical, more of a commentary on um, what this life could be like if you felt like you were stuck in a time loop. And Ramus was like, no, 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 we got to make this a romantic comedy. We got to make this funny. The studio itself... Um, I forget the studio, but the studio head was saying how he felt like the family movies were the movies that were going to make the most amount of money there in the 90s as a reaction to some of the violence and some of the more um, dystopian films that were coming out, like uh, Terminator 2 and others that had come out around that time. So it made sense what he was trying to do, but I could understand Bill Murray's instincts, which speaks to his more philosophical approach to the world, despite his comedy, that you that I understand why these two would fight. And apparently it led 
you know, to their breakup as a, as a creative partnership that wasn't fixed until Harold Ramis was on his deathbed. So just, um, it's an interesting film for so many reasons behind the scenes and in front of the camera, man. Well, and th- this is why I think people's perceptions of how movies get made or just, you know, someone just decides I'm going to make that movie and then they make it. It's just not what's happening. Like there's just constant back and forth and push between the studios, the star, the writer are trying to figure out. And I mean, there is no movie like this. You can't look at, you know, like you go like, okay, I want to make an action movie like Die Hard and I study Die Hard and then I can, you know, but there's nothing for them to study for this movie. You know what I mean? Like this is its own thing that works in its own way. Um, The other, the one I saw too, I don't know if you saw this one is that in order to get the green light, the studio said, look, you have to have an explanation of why this thing is happening. And so they, and, and, and Ramis resisted and Danny Rubin resisted. And then finally the studio went, look, we are not green lighting this picture unless you come up with why this is happening. So they wrote some, ver- and there were a bunch of different, like he's cursed by someone or yeah. you know, there's science fiction versions. I don't remember which one they came up with, but they wrote the script. But then Harold Ramis scheduled that shoot for the very end of the shoot when he knew they would be out of money and out of time. And so they never actually shot it. <laughs> yeah. So that's another, yet another lesson, Steve, uh, here on the cinephiles about filmmaking. Like sometimes you do have to play certain games with the studio executives play certain games with directors and producers producers play certain games with directors so and actors so it's just it's a constant game sometimes and you have to understand the system and certainly harold lamus by this point was a veteran filmmaker so he knew how to play this game with them uh, and smartly did so you know because i like that it's ambiguous how this all happens yeah i i think it would have been a huge mistake to try to create a thing we don't need it yeah we don't need it because if it's supposed to represent in a very like surface way that we have situations that we repeat in our lives over and over again, or we get stuck in ruts. We never see the ruts coming. So when the ruts start to happen in our lives, and certainly I've experienced this, I may be in one right now. I, 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 don't, know, I don't know if I am, but I feel like I am. But when we see the ruts coming, we don't see the ruts coming rather. And when they come, it, we're just like lost in this place of how do I figure it out? How do I figure it out? And I compare it to a golfer, right? Golfers out of nowhere get the mm-hmm. yips, get the, get the issues with the swings, or whatever, or pitchers all of a sudden can't throw the strikes, can't throw. So it's all comparable and it comes out of nowhere. So the fact that this is just not, this just comes out of nowhere and he's stuck in this situation, I think it makes it much more universal and relatable uh, in its approach to telling the story. I think that's a great point. And I think, you know, like we have the, the sort of psychological shorthand of if you're having this problem, it must be because of some thing in right. the past. And once you discover the thing in the past, you solve the problem and yay, we win. And, and there are a lot of movies that operate on that, that idea. Yeah. Yeah. But that's not how life frequently is. You know, frequently you're just, I'm here. I don't know how I get here. I'm feeling this. I mean, like I, we, we were texting recently and I was like, I'm just kind of down today. And you yeah. asked, which is the normal next question. What's up? Is there something going on? I'm like, no, I don't. I just was, and there was no explanation. That's just yeah. where I was that day. Yeah. Um, yeah. One other thing, which is just shocking to me, is it is shocking to me that they didn't initially, it wasn't just obviously this is going to be Bill Murray, because it's so obvious to me that it has to be Bill Murray to play this part. But they went after, he was really thinking about both Michael Keaton, which totally makes sense. I could totally see Michael Keaton doing this, and Tom Hanks. And he was talking to Tom Hanks, and Tom Hanks liked the script. And in the end, you know, Ramis kind of went, no, this really has to be Bill Murray. When the movie came out, Tom Hanks went to see it called up Harold Ramis and said, of course it had to be Bill Murray. There's no way I could have done this. And what Tom Hanks said, very perceptive about himself, is that 
he, people think of him as just an extremely likable person. Yeah. And so like he would have had to somehow overcome that in order to play this part. And whereas Bill Murray is Bill Murray, you know? Yeah. But I will tell you this, two things with Michael Keaton. He said later he regretted it, mm. turning it down. And I think that's the reason he did multiplicity with Harold Ramis and oh. Andy McDowell. But if you guys haven't seen Man Called Auto, which I think is on Netflix now, that's essentially Tom Hanks's version of Groundhog Day. Mm. He is a curmudgeonly, grumpy dude who is mad about the world in certain ways, and he has to go through this process in order to find his smile again. And so in a way, it's a verse. He's not repeating the same day over and over again, right. but the character arc is very similar to what uh, was written out in Groundhog Day. So maybe Tom felt now, later in his life, when mm. he's played all these roles, won all these Oscars, showed his range as an actor, he can play some of this. People can accept him as a curmudgeonly grumpy guy and then having to discover how to be good to people again. So uh, I would recommend it. I really liked that film. I hadn't, I hadn't seen it. And it just, it struck me so much. Like that's the one I watched the trailer and I was like, this feels like Tom Hanks doing Gran Torino, you know, the Clint Eastwood movie. <laughs> a little less violent, but yes, yes. <laughs> Harold Ramis and Bill Murray had worked together since like 1974. Yeah. This is their this is their sixth project together. And you you already hinted at it, mm. but it sounds like it was serious clashing throughout from beginning to the end of this film between the two of them. Yeah, apparently Murray was going through a divorce. So that's never a good time to find somebody sometimes. And he was going through, he was dealing with all the stuff that he was dealing with. And then there was feelings of like, I think probably he was stuck in a rut, right? Everyone that sees me as the comedian. I want to do more. I want to be seen as more. Yeah. And this film is the film that launches him to be considered for something like Lost in Translation and these other more serious films that really gave him a second career as an actor, Bill Murray. But Harold Ramis was the comedian. They'd always worked together. Like, and so I think Bill Murray maybe felt like at some point, I am funny. I am talented. I am my own person. I don't need to have Harold Ramis in order to be successful. And maybe he felt uh, in a way that his greatness was being not fully realized by other people because he kept being connected to Harold Ramis. And that happens. That happens in creative partnerships, Martin and Lewis, you name them down the road, uh, Key, Key, uh, Key and Peele, like you name it. Like people get to the point where like, no, I want to do my own thing. I want to be seen as my own separate entity as a talent. I don't need to be seen as always through, okay, he's great because he worked with this person, Tom Brady and, and uh, Bill Belichick in the NFL. Same thing. Tom Brady wanted to break away from Bill Belichick to prove he could do it without him. And so that those are those things that you see sometimes with creative partnerships, Steve. Um, I hope this won't be Roca and Morris circa, you know, <laughs> no, 2026 or something. I think we're separately pretty established in our own way. So, yeah. you know, us coming together is a fun time. Um, so shall we get into the film? Yes. We start off with a little bit of titles and some fast moving clouds. And then we hear a voice. And we go right into the weather report with, with Bill Murray clearly having a ball with the blue screen. Out in California, they're going to have some warm weather tomorrow, gang wars, and some very overpriced real estate. Up in the Pacific Northwest, as you can see, they're going to have some very, very tall trees. And I love, like, you know, the moments where he is blowing all the wind off. And he's very funny. And you go like, oh, I think Phil Connors is a fun weatherman. Yeah. This is a pickup shoot. The movie originally started with just arriving in Punxsutawney and they realized they needed to show a little bit more about who this guy is before yeah. they got there. So they shot this as a pickup. Tomorrow is Groundhog Day and I'm going out to Punxsutawney 
for our country's oldest Groundhog Festival. And I love that the anchor, she says. Sounds like a lot of fun. You must really enjoy it. This is your third year in a row, isn't it, Phil? Four, Nan. Four. It's just a perfect setup for how he mm -hmm. feels. We're off camera, and there's a little bit of giving shit with between him and the anchor, obviously, and he says, For your information, hairdo. I love that he calls her hairdo. There is a major network interested in me. And there is Chris Elliott, who says, Yeah, that would be the home shopping network. Uh, first of all, Chris Elliott is basically there because this is the era of Chris Elliott. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, yeah. And Ramis was a huge fan of uh, Letterman on The Late Show. And this is where Chris Elliott was just, he's one of those people that is funny because he's Chris Elliott. Do you know what yeah. I mean? Yes. Yeah. The Chris Elliott show. Yeah. Yeah. Very much. And it's just his delivery and his tone and it's, it's just odd. And I'll, I'll let you in on, well, it won't be a secret now. Okay. I thought he was funny back in the day. Mm -hmm. I really did not find him funny watching the movie this time. I don't think he's supposed to be funny in this film. I think he has the lines, but they're supposed to make him pathetic and slightly jealous, I think. Yeah. So, um, so that by the end, when that old lady is, uh, you know, uh, bidding two bits for him, there's a reason for that. Cause this oh. guy's caught in his own like sarcastic time loop himself oh. in how he is and won't come out of it, you know? And so, um, yeah, and it's a bit of a commentary on people who are just pride themselves on being sarcastic. It's kind of a lonely life, you know? I yeah. hadn't thought about it until you said it, but mm -hmm. actually Chris Elliott is, or Larry, Larry, is kind of as much of a miserable SOB as Phil Connors. Oh, 100%, which is why he chimes in. He has no reason to chime in in that little bit of a battle between the anchor and Phil, but he does chime in in order to kind of dig at Phil. And he's going to be in the car with Phil, Right. In just a few minutes, heading up to Fox at Donnie. Um, th this is such a great intro, and I'm so smart, and it's so smart of them to to realize they needed this because right off the bat, and it's kind of ironic because Bill Murray in, in in his own life is trying to break away from Ramus, but here is a character in Phil who immediately we see him doing the weather and he's playing with it. And he's, but you can tell that this is something that he knows how to do so well that it's like no big deal for him to do it, and he's almost in a way smirking as he's doing because it's so easy to him. So when he sits at the table, sits at the desk, the fact that she doesn't know that it's his fourth year betrays how little he feels respected by that place. And then her and then her response back and forth with him, him calling her hairdo, like all of it just betrays the fact that he and he's not happy about going up to Boxatani. And even with that one actor who I know was in Sex in the City, he comes in and is like, oh, yeah, you know, I'll do the I could do five tomorrow if you want to stay. And he's like, are you kidding? I don't want to stay one more second in that place. So immediately there's people devaluing his contribution to the station and there's someone who wants to take his job. So you get a good example of what this guy is dealing with real quick before and how much he does not want to go to Poxitani before he actually goes. So to me, it's really smart because it quickly lays the groundwork of this guy. And then we're into the meat of the film uh, and what happens in uh, Poxitani. What, what's so amazing to me about Bill Murray's performance in this movie is that he has to do just what you're describing on so many levels, so many times of like, mm. I am doing this thing and I'm doing yeah, yeah. it well, but you can see the cracks just this much. Yeah. And then throughout the film, he adjusts how much of the cracks, how much of the real truth is coming out or not. And, and it's, that is some hard acting, you know, that you, to do. Listen, to play the protagonist and antagonist in your own yeah. film is extremely difficult. And very, very few people are able to do that because he is the antagonist and protagonist of this movie. Um, and he's so good at it. We see for the first time Rita, which is Annie McDowell, 
playing with the blue screen and just having a ball and being so she is really cute in this movie it's a good juxtaposition isn't it steve we just saw uh, phil doing the weather and he seemed to be like so kind of bored with doing it even though he's good at it as you mentioned but you see andy and she's finding the joy in it right and it's a little bit of a foreshadowing of what phil's journey needs to be here in the movie seeing her play around with the blue screen or seeing herself disappear in her hands and uh, head look disembodied and she's having fun with it so in a way it's kind of interesting and i've seen some people pontificate that she's a ghost that that shows you that oh. she's a, go- a bit of a ghost because she's repeating in his dream in his in his time loop over and over and over again as like the ghost of was it christmas present or whatever to show him what he could be so it's just interesting so to show her disembodied like that i've seen some people make an opinion like that which is interesting i think I think that is very interesting. <laughs> That's what I know. Steve's rejected an idea. <laughs> um, but, but what I do think that it does illustrate is that, and it's so funny because this is what I do with, with my son all the time, is what is your attitude going into the new thing? Yeah. And Rita's attitude is open to experience and excited and expecting the world to be neat and fun and cool and interesting. And Phil's attitude is I've seen it all before. Nothing is going to surprise. There's only going to be negatives and negative surprises coming my way. And that makes him, again, a miserable SOB. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, we get some more titles and under the titles is the song, I'm your weatherman <laughs> co co-written by Harold Ramis. <laughs> Can you keep a secret, Larry? I'm probably leaving PBH. So this will be the last time we do the groundhog together. Question. Does he really have a network offer? No, of course not. Yeah. No, it's all just to show and, you know, pump himself up and whatever. Again, he's a guy who's very frustrated in his job. So he has to create the scenarios so he can outwardly look like someone who's in demand. But I'm sure everyone else sees through it. That's totally what I think, too. Yeah. Uh, he's, you know, talking smack about the Groundhog Festival. And uh, Annie McDowell is so cute in her little description. She goes, I think it's a nice story. He comes out. He looks around. Wrinkles up his little nose. He sees a shadow. He doesn't see a shadow. It's nice. People like it. Uh, I do. I when I am feeling very negative, which does certainly happen, being with someone who is unbelievably positive is extremely irritating. <laughs> so I understand Phil here, but he is also a jerk. Yes. You know, people like blood sausage too. People are morons. Nice attitude. I want you to look in the mirror and see what you look like when you do that little ground thing. Apparently, this relationship was very much the chemistry between Bill Murray and Andy McDowell on the set. Mm. And one of the things that um, Harold Ramis said that I thought was interesting was they didn't hire Andy McDowell to be funny. Right. Because if she was trying to be funny, it actually would, w- wouldn't would work with Bill Murray. Like, it, Bill Murray's the funny person. He has to be doing that. She can't be trying to compete there. Her job is to be wholesome and warm and a lovely, wonderful person. Yeah. And to call him out. Which is yeah. later on when he starts to try to manipulate her into a relationship. She's because she's so wholesome and pure. She sees through all this bullshit consistently. So you have to establish her so well in that arena. And look, Andy's not the strongest of actresses. Let's be honest. Let's be real. So what she does here is perfect. She brings in a very natural, wholesome energy to this role, which is kind of difficult to do, you know, to be honest, as, as an actress. So I think she does a wonderful job here bringing this character to life in a way that feels real 
and not a caricature. And that's not all. That's a, if you don't have that energy within you, that essence, it's not going to come through in the delivery. And I think she really has that within her, which is why it comes through at this time. I, I totally agree with you about her as an actor. Mm. And, and I, but I also think it's, you know, when she is used properly, yes, she works Water. great. You know, it's, it's, it's like having a utility player that I can't think of the right sports analogy exactly, but like who comes in and does that one thing Yeah, and, they, yeah. and you don't expect them to do very much else. They can yeah, do that. Closer. Yeah. Like a closer. Yeah. yeah. We arrive at Punxsutawney. Of course, this is not Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania. Part of the reasons is, is that there was, there's no town center where they do the groundhog thing in Punxsutawney. They do it kind of out in a park that's away from the town. And then the second thing is, is you need certain things to shoot a movie. You need accommodations for all the crew. You need the right kinds of buildings. You need uh, the right kinds of resources. You don't want to be too far from a town. Punxsutawney is like 80 miles away from Pittsburgh, so it's, mm. it's too far. So there are all these reasons they couldn't use it. They scouted 60 towns around Pennsylvania, Ohio, Illinois, until finally they pull into Woodstock, Illinois, which is where this was shot. Um, and they found, you know, the square right in the center of the town, mm. all sorts of great looking buildings that they could use. Um, apparently, the courthouse, which is there, was the courthouse where Eugene Debs, the socialist president of the United States, or, or the socialist who was running for president of the United States, was defended by Clarence Darrow there. <laughs> wow. One of the most important trials of the early 20th century was in Woodstock, Illinois. Um, and and the opera house is like the big building that they use for a lot of stuff there as well. Hmm. Rita, I can't stay here. Oh, prima donna. What's the matter, Phil? I hate this place. I stayed here two years ago. I was miserable. It's a flea bag. So first of all, we're, I mean, it's not like we didn't figure out who Phil Connors was from the very beginning of the movie, <laughs> but he continues to show his, his dickishness. Yeah. But, but the next thing that happens is he says, I'm not staying here. You're not staying here. I'm not? No. Larry's just dropping me off. I booked you in a very nice bed and breakfast in Cherry Street. So we see that Andy is a good producer or yes. that, that Rita is a good producer. You know, I think this is one of the traits of a really good producer. Keep the talent happy. Anything I can do. Would you help me with my pelvic tilt? From everything I hear about Bill Murray, this is Bill Murray. You know? Yeah. Like, he is funny, and he is an asshole. Which is ironic, because he does all these films where he has to learn to not be an asshole. Yet there are many, many stories about him being an asshole I mean, look up the Lucy Liu stuff uh, or other people involved with Charlie's Angels. Um, yeah, the, the stuff with him and Harold Ramis in this film and then other stuff. Certainly not a guy who hasn't rubbed some people the wrong way. Um, and certainly as someone who's had my own battles, I'm not going to judge him. But like, um, it's ironic that he does films like this. They're constantly sending the message of not being an asshole in the world. Well, it's so funny, you know, we we spent literally years on this show talking about the different kinds of actors, mm. and some actors are great at being themselves in different circumstances. You know what I mean? Yeah, like yeah. Bill Murray, you look at Bill Murray in he has a he has a range and the characters he pl he plays in Rushmore is different from the guy in Stripes. Yeah, yeah. But they're still Bill Murray, you know. Right. They're, right, yeah. You know, this isn't like uh you know, Robert De Niro, where you, cause we've, I've been looking at a lot of Robert De Niro and I recently watched, you know, uh, uh, King of comedy mm. and mean streets and casino. I, cause I've been watching a lot of Martin Scorsese lately. Yeah. I mean, that guy's totally transformed. Sure. You know, where Bill Murray's Bill Murray. Um, it is the next morning 
And this is the beginning of, of the repetitions or, or the first one that is yeah. going to be repeated. Uh, this is all shot on a set that was, I think, nearby Woodstock, Illinois. The alarm hits six o'clock. John, how do you feel about the song I've Got You, Babe? I do like the song. It's a very simple too. song, you know? Um, remember that song uh, from George Harrison in the 80s? Uh, I Got My Mind Set On You? <laughs> um, Weird Al did a wonderful yeah. parody of it. Uh, just, called, yes. Yeah, this song is just eight words long. Yeah. And that's essentially how I feel about I Got You, Babe. Cher, an incredible talent, all right? Yeah. Sonny Bono, very limited. So <laughs> that's the difference there. And so... Um, I think in a way, this that song is a perfect choice. Ruben said they chose a song because it's it repeats over and over again, the same uh, refrain. But also, it's kind of ironic. It's a bit of a song that is kind of foreshadowing a much more talented woman in Andy McDowell's character versus mm. a limited person here in Sonny Bono, and that would be Bill Murray's character in the film oh, at this time. So, you know, I, I think it's a smart choice for a song. It is also such a poppy song with a hook that yeah. just is so recognizable that from like two notes, you know what song you're in, which is what you need is that you need the, because what we're going to do is we're going to make all these signposts yeah. of the repetitions that we're going to see over and over again. The, the, the clock and I've got you, babe, is obviously the first one. And then we hear our radio DJs who are going off about how cold it is and heading towards talking about the blizzard, which at this point. Phil has predicted that the blizzard is going to miss the town. Yeah. Um, so he thinks they're wrong. And we're just listening to all this details that leads us up to hearing that it's Groundhog Day. And he also looks out the window, by the way, and these are all important details. And we see that there's snow on the ground, but not a lot of snow. Mm. Um, and he, again, we're going to, these are the things we're going to touch over and over again. He walks out into the hallway at the top of the stairs and there's this guy who gives him a big good morning. And this actor is Ken Hudson Campbell. You off to see the groundhog? Yes, I am. Do you think it's going to be an early spring? I'm predicting March 21st. <laughs> oh, good guess. That's a great, great little joke. By the way, Steve, this is our second Ken Hudson Campbell movie. Oh, what's, what was our first? Armageddon. He is the guy with the bear claws who flies off and dies <laughs> on uh, drilling into uh, the the into the moon or the asp the meteor rather. So that is Ken Hudson. Give this is a obviously a, a much more toned down <laughs> character, but uh, that is the same actor. Yeah, that is hilarious. I didn't know that. Uh, we Great. go down to the the bed and breakfast kind of dining room, and there is Mrs. Lancaster, who is Angela Payton, who actually is a Bay Area actress, and I had oh. seen her in a bunch of theater cool. in the Bay Area. You, would you like some coffee? I don't suppose there's any possibility of getting an espresso or a cappuccino this morning, is there? Oh, I I really don't know. Um, How to spell espresso or cappuccino. You're just such a dick. And then I want to ask you, so then there's this next moment where she asks about the weather and he goes into his weather spiel. Yeah. Does he do this because he thinks she's really asking about the weather or is oh, it just? No. Okay. It's, it's a dig at her again. Like it's a first the, the March 21st thing is funny, but it's certainly a dig at the guy. And then down there asking about the, she knows they don't have espresso, good cappuccinos, a fucking bed and breakfast. And second of all, um, he does the weather thing to kind of mess with her and show, Oh, look, this is what I do. Uh, and so it, it's, it's a bit of a, uh, insulting thing to do to her for sure. As he's leaving, she asks if he'll be checking out, and he says, Chance of departure today, 100%. People who just walk around being mean to people for no particular reason, it's just, 
I, 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 I find it hard to even be in the same room with people that behave like this. Yeah. You know, as I get older, I find myself, and look, we all have days where we're dicks or assholes or, or bitches, whatever you want to say. Sure. We all have days, uh, regardless of gender. We all have days. And, but like to be consistently that every day, that's something deep seated that you haven't come to terms with. And I don't know. I just feel terrible for people like that because that's no kind of existence, Steve. It's a horrible right. existence, you know? Well, again, this is the thing I keep trying to get into my son's head who frequently has a very negative attitude about things. Mm. It's like, not only are you punishing everybody around you, but you're making, this is making your life less happy. You yeah. know, that's the person who's most around the negative attitude is you, you know? Yeah. Um, I was debating whether, where, where to bring this up, but the okay. thing to think about in terms of behind the scenes is you don't shoot movies in order. Right. So when you get to a location, you're going to shoot out that whole location all at one time. So even though we see the good morning with the guy at the top of the stairs or this scene with uh, the about the coffee and the weather yeah. Yeah. multiple times throughout the film, they were all shot back to back to back to back to back. So you shot seven scenes at the top of those stairs. Mm. You know, you shot this scene multiple times. And that is super confusing for actors because yeah, – yeah. To keep straight. And so the one thing is Bill would ask Harold Ramis at the beginning of the scene, is this good Phil or bad Phil? That was the first question. Oh, wow. And then it was trying to, he had to figure out like, okay, where are you on this journey? Yeah. And then the, and, and I mean, that's, I mean, it's a, it's a really weird acting challenge yeah. to replay the same scene in slightly different or vastly different ways over and over and over again, yeah. you know? Um, and all the extras, all the extras, they don't know that anything's changed. They don't know that there's a repetition. So they have to try to do the same things that they were normally doing, but then change all of that slightly based on the differences created by Phil Connors, you know? Yeah. Michael Shannon said this in, in an interview, uh, talking about the movie. He said, like, I was on set in scenes at the diner, even though I, I wasn't being shot yeah. for that day because they wanted to have the people who are actually going to be in the town consistently in these scenes so that there was continuity in that way. It's, it's and that's a rare thing for movies usually. You know? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it could cost money. <laughs> all, yeah, all, you know, having, having, you know, it's like yeah. actors have a day rate and you go like, well, they're only have one speaking scene on this one day. So I should only have to pay them one day, but instead you had to pay them for a week or two. Yeah. Yeah. So we go out onto the street and we, and speaking of the, like the street, this is probably the most complicated one. If you watch this scene with Steven Tobolowsky, yeah. there are 50 passerbys, there are cars going by, there's all these things happening in the background and the AD and everyone is being super anal because yeah. it always has to be the same. Even though the scene has changed as we do it multiple times, yeah. that car doesn't know that anything's changed. It has to pass at the exact same moment <laughs> as it did in every other version. Right. It's really hard <laughs> to pull this all off. <laughs> um, so he walks out on the street. He walks past uh, a homeless man who he does like a gesture like he's maybe going to give him money, but of course he isn't. Yeah. And then we hear... Phil? Hey, Phil? Phil? Phil Connors? Phil Connors, I thought that was you. Hi, how you doing? Thanks for watching. Hey, hey. Now, don't you tell me you don't remember me because I sure as heck fire remember you. I cannot say enough great things about his performance in this movie. Uh, I mean, he's quietly the hero of this film. Do you know what I'm saying? And I don't mean in a way like he does anything remotely great to his help people. I just mean like his scenes are so notable. Of all the character actors they got yeah. to play these separate roles, 
his scenes are the ones that stand out um, of all of them. Do you know what I'm saying? And so, yeah, it's such a great intro to this character. And Tobolowski said, like, they were changing the script sometimes daily. And when he showed up for his first day of shooting, three quarters of what he had memorized and studied was gone out of the script and new stuff was in there. So you're seeing a really great actor in Stephen Tobolowski, like adapt and improvise and memorize quickly and be able to bring that kind of performance uh, in those uh, lines there on the script. So, you know, and this guy had a wonderful podcast, used to teach all around L.A. It's a great, great actor, man. Yeah, I mean, he he's literally the person that shows up at everything, you know, every single kind of movie you can imagine. Yes. Um, well, and the other thing he had to do was, it, A, he's getting new pages of script, but then it's also Bill Murray's improvising. Right. You know, yes. so yeah. you got to deal with that. Apparently, uh, he booked it in the room. He came, he came to the audition and said, listen, th- I've been working on this part. It's gotten bigger and bigger and bigger, and I'm just going to go full on. <laughs> and then if you want, I can bring it back. Just let me know. And then he just did, went full on, and they all looked at each other and just were like, you're hired. <laughs> you <Yeah. know? laughs> He's so I, good in this scene. He's so good. And I, ha- I, I, this is how good I think he is. I had to look up who the best supporting actor nominees in 1994 were because I think this is an Oscar worthy supporting actor performance. And I will tell you who they are. It's a good list. Yes. So it's uh, Leonardo DiCaprio for What's Eating Gilbert Grape, mm-hmm. Ray Fines for Schindler's List, John Malkovich for In the Line of Fire, Pete Postawaite for In the Name of the Father, and the winner is Tommy Lee Jones for The Fugitive. Yeah. It's tough to put him above any of those, though, Steve. Yeah, that's a good, that's a real strong list. <laughs> yeah. what? But if they if they had given Tobolowski more to do in the film, I think you could have had a contention with him and Pete Postlewaite, possibly. You could have a battle there, possibly. The level of energy he has as he's trying to introduce himself to this person who obviously doesn't remember him. Needle nose, Ned, Ned the head. Come on, buddy. Case Western High. Ned Ryerson, I did the whistling belly button trick at the high school talent show. Bing! Just the whistling belly button trick at the high school talent. I mean, you know, you saw that at your high, some version of the, and it was probably me who got uh, up to do it. <laughs> I mean, I didn't actually do that, but I got up to do stupid stuff in the high school talent oh, show. Definitely. God love you. Um, <laughs> and I love the, I love the bing. Oh, the bing is great. Uh, now, it, here's a question for you. Yeah. Do you believe him? I was wondering the same thing. <laughs> I, was, I mean, I, I think I do. I think I do. Like, yeah. well, well, here's the other thought I had is I, I kind of went all of the, the stuff that, um, he, that Phil does later on with Nancy of making up a story that they went to high school together. Yes. I think he gets that from Ned, yeah. but whether, but that made me have the exact thought that you had, which is, is Ned making this up? Is Ned in his own time loop? I, I, so I don't, I, well, this is what gets so weird about this because part of me started thinking about, well, what the fuck is actually happening? You know, like, are we actually make, cause we could be creating new universes and that, that story actually goes on yeah. after he kills himself. And there's a, there's a world in which Phil killed himself. You know what I mean? Yeah. Someone's got to collect that life insurance. And then yeah, this is, yeah. The thing is crazy. And I was going to bring this up later, but it seems like a perfect place to bring it up now. I had never in my mind thought that this was something that was happening over and over again beyond a couple of weeks, right? But in doing research for the film, listening to people who have actually quantified how long he's been in this time loop, 
it is quite possibly thousands of years or hundreds of years, yeah. depending on your philosophy, right? If you're the Buddhist philosophy, what is it? It takes 10,000 years for a life to go to the next level. And other people say it takes like hundreds of years or whatever. So he has been in this time loop consistently once we get into it for like hundreds of years to learn piano, to learn French, to learn all things. It would take more than one day and constant to be as good as he is. The ice sculpting, that's going to take you a very long time to get good at that. And so when you look at this, so with the Ned situation, how many times has Ned come up to him as these as we go into these repeats and had a different approach to it? And is he in his own? Is Ned in his own purgatory where he has to somehow make a connection with Bill and save Bill so he can get his wings? Is he part of this whole thing? And so it's just fascinating to me. You know, Steve, Steve texted me and he's like, how many parts do you think we think that we're going to do this? And, and I was like, I don't I feel like two parts because we're going to have a lot to talk about. And this is the kind of stuff I mean. This film is much more than just a straight comedy. And God, I hope you don't come to the cinephiles for just a straight film conversation. We, we go deep in these films. Uh, and so, um, yeah. I, so I started thinking about that with Ned. Is Ned trying to get his wings like Clarence? And so he's doing all these different things to get Bill Murray to punch him or hit him or so, so that eventually by the end, he, they have that moment after the dance there at the end where it's um, what's her face that has to tell him like, oh, let's not spoil it, you know. Okay, so I so we definitely have to revisit the how long has he been in the we're going we're gonna yeah. revisit that many, many times as we go, because it is a Fair huge enough. it is a huge number that he's yeah. of times that he's lived through this has day. To be. Yeah, has to be. So, but, but you go like, is Ned Clarence, is he the angel? And the thought that I had is, is Ned the devil? I mean, like, <laughs> like Ned does not bring out the best of, of Bill. He is a right. horribly obnoxious person. I mean, just the, I mean, it, and it's so funny and painful. Just the, the, uh, he's asking about the life insurance. Cause if you do, you could always use a little more. Am I right? Or am I right? Or am I right? Right, right, right. And I am sure you've had this salesman coming at you. Please. And I am not, not a fan. <laughs> yeah, no, I, but that's, that's what I mean. Like this is his penance is that he has to be this way in order to um, get all these emotions out of Bill, out of Phil rather. So that by the end, Phil actually appreciates this kind of person can deal with this kind of person because it's not about um, redemption is not being able to deal with people that you like. Redemption right. is being able to deal with the people that you don't like or that you or that great you or that rub you the wrong way, being able to not be judgmental of them. That's redemption. And so Phil, uh, or rather, um, uh, Ned has to be this way in order to keep challenging Phil in every iteration of this day until eventually Phil is kind to him, understands him, he's nice to him, he signs up for insurance, gets that extra insurance. And everything, and he does it from a genuine place, not just to get rid of Ned. And so I think he has to be this way, which is what I find fascinating about the portrayal uh, of this character that from Tobolowski. A hundred percent agree, and I want to table this because I want to come back because we are going to come back to him. Obviously, Absolutely. this is Groundhog Day. We're going to come back to all this many times. <laughs> yes. Um, but the other moment with uh, Ned that I think is interesting is that uh, Phil steps off the curb and he steps into the hole with the icy water, which yeah. is horrible. And that Ned says, watch out for that first step. It's a doozy. <laughs> Ned is a jerk. <laughs> you know, in addition, in addition to being needy and obnoxious and trying to make a salesman and all that stuff, he's not a nice person. So that's go. It does go to your point about this. 
No, I just don't think Ned knows he's a bad person. I, I think oh, of course not. Yeah, and I think just Ned is just being Ned. And to him, everything is like, ho, ho, ha, you know, and those kinds of things. And so there are people like that. Oh, yeah. As you said, Steve, who we've encountered in life. And they are, they are the interesting situation for sure. By the way, the town of Woodstock has plaques everywhere referencing Groundhog Day, including oh. right on this curb where Bill, where they have repaired the hole, obviously. But this is, the, this is where Bill Murray stepped off this curve into a puddle. Wow. <laughs> um, we're heading up to the town square, which, of course, is Gobbler's Knob, which is just a funny name anyway. Hello. Yeah. Listening. And again, I think just as uh, I've Got You, Babe, is perfect, the song Pennsylvania Polka is perfect. And by the way, again, it was super cold uh, when they were shooting this. And they had to shoot all the exterior scenes in winter because they all had to match. Yeah. And this is winter in Illinois. And at some point it's like, you know, 10 degrees. And they've got all these people here that are the local town folk. And they had to keep them there for a couple of days, I think, to shoot all this stuff. Because you're reshooting the same thing over and over again. Yeah. They're not getting paid. And so they're doing like giveaways and putting on little shows and anything to keep these people interested and standing around in the super cold weather as they're filming this stuff. Yeah. Um, uh, and they basically, the, the, the stand where they're doing the, the groundhog stuff is like an exact replica of what they do in Punxsutawney. Oh, really? Um, That's awesome. And again, we hear Rita's response to what's going on. She loves all this. These people are great. Some of them have been partying all night long. They sing songs till they get too cold and then they go sit by the fire and they get warm and then they come back and they sing some more. Yeah. They're hicks, Rita. And he looks at himself in the camera, in the lens to get to check his hair and stuff. Again, this is all perfect Bill Murray kind of joke. She says, you're incredible. Who told you? And then he counts himself in. I'm me in three, two, one. Does his professional, fine groundhog speech. Sure. He hits the perfect level of I am professionally phoning this in. Once a year, the eyes of the nation turn to this tiny hamlet in Western Pennsylvania to watch a master at work. The master, Punxsutawney Phil, the world's most famous weatherman, the groundhog. And then he describes as his brother, Brian Doyle Murray, who's like, you know, the leader of the groundhog thing, what he's doing, opening up the door, bringing out the groundhog, talking to the, what uh, Bill Murray calls the little rat. Uh, by the way, the guy who hands the groundhog to Brian Doyle Murray is the actual handler of the groundhog. The groundhog's name is Scooter. And uh, Scooter was Ray was bred for this movie specifically. Oh wow! Yeah, like he he was raising a bunch of groundhogs, training them, and found Scooter was the best one to use. Punxsutawney Phil, the seer of seers, prognosticator of prognosticators, emerged reluctantly and stated in groundhoggies, "I definitely see a shadow." Phil counts himself in again, this time as he goes three, two, one. The one is his middle finger, which is a small detail, but a good one. This is one time where television really fails to capture the true excitement of a large squirrel predicting the weather. I, for one, am very grateful to have been here from Punxsutawney. This is Phil Connors. So long. Okay, we'll try it again without the sarcasm. We got it. And walks away. Yeah. It sounds like there were times where not only was Bill Murray fighting with Ramus, but he was nasty to other people on the crew and yeah shannon apparently um 
Shannon felt like he had angered Bill Murray in some way, and and this is Michael Shannon, Bill Murray, Michael Shannon, yes, Michael Shannon, sorry, and Bill Murray, not Shannon McClung. No, yeah, right. Although, yeah, I can't imagine anyone ever being mad at Shannon McClung. But yes, uh, Michael Shannon. But uh, b- apparently, Harold made Bill apologize publicly in front of other people on the set for what uh, had transpired there. So interesting. Which that's a thing to do, you know. Yeah, it's a tough thing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but I, if if I, I you know me, I do not like people being mean to people that work for them. Mm. You know, like I, yeah. I would. I don't know that I would. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's it, those are rough situations when you're starting making someone public. publicly apologize. That's that's a that's an interesting situation for sure. Yeah, yeah, I probably would say maybe encourage them to privately apologize. Yes, but maybe not publicly. We're driving in a blizzard. The blizzard that Phil said wasn't going to happen. Hmm. He I love. He gets out of the car and they're making. This is they got a big snow machine and so this is you know real fake. It's real snow, real ice crystals that are being blown. What's going on? There's nothing going on. We're closing the road. Big blizzard moving in. What blizzard? It's a couple of flakes. I love just the level of denial. Now you can go back to Puxatawney, or you can go ahead and freeze to them. It's your choice. So what's it going to be? I'm thinking. I think they were totally thinking about Jack Benny for this moment. Interesting. Because, Explain that. I will, because there is a long pause. And yeah. he says, I'm thinking. One of the things that Jack Benny was known for was his pauses. Yes. Was his comedy pauses. And one of the most famous one, which is apparently one of the biggest laughs in television history, is Jack Benny is getting robbed and the robber is pointing a gun at him and says, Your money or your life? <laughs> Look, bud. I said your money or your life. I'm thinking it over. I think I remember seeing that. <laughs> and I'm sure they were referencing. I mean, they had to be referencing it. Um, and then he's on a payphone. This is great dialogue. He's desperately trying to get a line out of Ponxitani. Don't you have some kind of a line that you keep open for emergencies or for celebrities? I'm both. I'm a celebrity in an emergency. And then he gets hit with a shovel. Which I think is great. Now, okay, so let's have two discussions here, real quick. Okay, one, you cannot deny the symbolism that a tunnel, which is the way out, is blocked. Mm. So there's something there. They could have chosen to jackknife that truck at any other location, but the fact that they chose a tunnel is really interesting, right? Because that's you're going through a portal out of one area into another area. It is blocked. So that's that's symbolic in its way because it's your way out of this loop. Him getting hit in the head, I have seen people say that this is all while he's like, passed out. The entire movie sure. is after he's knocked in the head by that shovel. He actually is knocked out. So everything he's going through in the movie is actually happening in his unconscious mind while he's out. Um, so I think those two back-to-back are interesting um, things to look at when you look at this movie, you know, I, I think the tunnel thing definitely, because the, the, it's so funny, like what, what you made me think of in talking about the tunnel is the border of the town that you can't go through. And I went, Oh, it's yeah. kind of like WandaVision, you know? Yeah. Right. Yes. Yeah. And WandaVision is, is where someone is creating a universe yep. 
that they can live in and be safe. It's it's sort of like the opposite of this in in, in some ways. Yeah. As far as far as like, I mean, yes, there are plenty of there are other movies too where you can say, oh, it was all a dream because of blank. And I find that makes the movie worse. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> Yeah, because to me, like what makes the movie great is that this really happened. You know, right. if I go, well, it was, I mean, it's all a dream is sort of a, I don't know, but well, I, well, I get well, it. You, but wait, Steve, but you think that he repeated today over and over again, that that's too fantastic. That that's realistic, but the getting hit in the head and possibly going through multiple days in an unconscious mind, you is didn't not ask realistic. Me, you didn't ask me which one I think is more realistic. <laughs> that was Fair not point. your question. If you're asking which one is more realistic, of course, the, I don't believe that people live days over like that. Of course, I think him having it all be a dream or being crazy or something <laughs> on a drug trip, that makes much more sense. Of course, I am saying that if I am thinking about this movie in which this whole thing happened, right. Uh, or I'm thinking about this movie in which this whole thing never happened. It was all in yeah. his head. I like the movie where it happened better. Yeah, the construct of works better yeah. in a movie than it actually happened. Yeah, I hear what yeah. you're saying, for sure. Uh, we're in a bar, and he's ordering a second drink. This is how to order a second drink. Can I have one more of these with some booze in it, please? <laughs> and Larry and Rita show up, and they're, like, going to go enjoy the evening and invite him to come along. You going to the Groundhog dinner? No, I had Groundhog for lunch. Wasn't bad. It tastes like chicken. And then he looks at Larry and says, Looking foxy tonight, man. Hey, uh, is your troop going to be selling cookies again this year? Jesus. Just yeah. utter dick. Utter dick. Yeah, totally dick. Then we cut to him in like an old-fashioned bathtub shower thing in the curtain. And this is, to me, the least believable thing in the movie. Who, <laughs> okay. who gets... Yeah, And yes, of course, there's a time loop and purgatory and all the other things. <laughs> but... Who lets gets into a strange shower and turns it on on their naked body without first checking to see what the water temperature is? 100%. 100% you're correct, my man. Yeah. Nobody does this. This is you're a grown man. You always check the water first. Um and, then I, and I don't understand, you know, it screams and you know cuz it's cold water, runs outside, sees uh, the woman who runs the place. Isn't there any hot water? No, there wouldn't be today. <laughs> of course not. Why wouldn't there be hot water today? I've never understood that line. Is, that, is it a Groundhog Day thing where they turn off all the hot water that day? I just don't understand. It was such a weird line. It's a yeah. totally weird line. <laughs> <laughs> and then we cut to our first repetition because we're back at the alarm clock. It's, we hear, I got you, babe. They start saying the same dialogue. And at first he's going, you guys have yesterday's tape on and then and predict some of the things they're saying. And then... When they get to talking about Groundhog Day, he looks out the window and he was in a blizzard last night yes. and there's no snow. Yeah. And again, we walk outside. We have the, the guy who says good morning um, and he slams him up against the wall and says, don't mess with me, pork chop. <sighs> what day is this? It's February 2nd. Groundhog Day. And this is this weird thing of when you're and we've talked about this in other ways, too, but like. When you're having a really weird, confusing time, you do your best to pull off like you're not completely freaking out, which is yeah. what he's going to try to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you ever have deja vu, Mrs. Lancaster? I don't think so, but I could check with the kitchen. Again, she asks if he'll be checking out today. And he says, where before he said, chance of departure, 100%. Now he says, I'd say the chance of departure is 80%. 75, 80 Outside, he calls this woman and asks where everyone's going. And she says, Gobbler's Knob. And this, of course, is the piano teacher. Yes. That we're going to find later. 
What I find really interesting in this movie, and I actually reminds me in a weird way of It's a Wonderful Life, which is that they had to track the days of all the supporting characters mm-hmm. and where they are and where they're going and who they, they, they had to really know who these people are yeah. because then they're going to put them into different circumstances and see who they are when the circumstances change, yeah. which is it's one of the things we said when we did It's a Wonderful Life last year, or now it is two years ago, is how amazing a job they did tracking all those supporting characters and then showing all, making it really clear what their lives would be like without George Bailey. Mm-hmm. And, th- and this is a similar challenge in a way. It's like, I understand who this character is, and now Phil Connor behaves differently. What are they going to do? How are they going to behave? Phil? Phil? Hey! Oh, Phil Connors! I thought that was you. My, oh my, Phil Connors. But this time he recognizes him. Mm-hmm. Ned Ryerson? First shot right out of the box. So, how's it going, old buddy? Well, uh, to say the truth, Nettie, I'm not feeling real well. Would you excuse me? <laughs> that just is an opening to sell him some health insurance along with the life insurance. Uh, and I, I just, Bill Murray does such a great job of the slow realization of things, you mm-hmm. know. Do me a favor. I need someone to give me a good, hard slap in the face. And she doesn't hesitate. She slaps him right away. If you need any help with the other cheek, let me know. I'm right here. Again, he does his groundhog speech. And this is what I mean of him, just the slightest variations between mm-hmm. the professional who was phoning it in the first time he did it yeah. to the person who's doing it again, but is really starting to be very freaked out about what's happening, you know? Yeah. And then he just kind of tosses the mic away and leaves and doesn't do the second part. And this is what I really don't believe. If I didn't believe a person would get into a shower without testing the water first, the <laughs> fact that he does it again, it's, re- it's just, I'm not saying this ruins the movie for me at all, but I really don't believe that that's reality. Well, I think maybe this is, and you, and you, and I totally validate you, you might be right here, but this may also be like his way of testing. You know, when I got in last time, it was hot as shit. If, if I get in this time and it's cold, if I get in this time and it's warm or it's perfect, then I know I'm not in this time loop. So I have to try out and see what's what's working, what isn't working, what's causing this. So maybe he's in an experimental place, but I hear you. It seems odd that he's constantly subjecting his body to this. I don't know if you knew this, John, but you can actually test the temperature of the water with your hand. Yeah, but then, then you're not repeating <laughs> the same thing. So in his way, if he... If he turns it on and it's a different temperature on his body, then he knows it's it's different. But I don't know. You're right. Well, not necessarily the brightest guy. So, you know. The, 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 the Cinephiles has once again shown why this is the greatest movie podcast out there. No one else has spent this much time on this, on on shower. A, on this shower moment in this particular film. Yeah, sport. I know there's a blizzard. When are the long distance lines going to be repaired? Well, what if there is no tomorrow? There wasn't one today. That's a great line. Yeah. Then they had all these plans because they went, okay, we want Phil to test if things are really reset. Like what's happening here? They had plans of him like giving himself a mohawk, shaving his head, spray painting the room and all this stuff. And they finally went, that all sounds too expensive and complicated. And so they have him break a pencil. Yeah. Put the break a pencil down. And then it's six o'clock and I got you is playing and he wakes up and he looks and there next to the clock radio is an unbroken pencil. And now he is truly freaked out. Yeah. 
And again, we go through the same thing, guy on the top of the stairs. He runs out without even getting any coffee. He, we see the homeless man. We hear Phil, Phil Connors, and he just starts running away from Ned. And I love, and again, this is just like, like yes, ending in an improv is that yeah. now Stephen Tobolowski has to play the same character with the yeah. same objectives, who's walked into the same situation, except now the guy's running away from him. Yeah. And he runs with him. <laughs> Most people would run, would like stop and be like, oh, wow. But because he runs after him, this is to me yet another example that he has his own agenda. He's been sent into this world with his own agenda as Ned. And so that's my perception of why he runs after Phil. I'm just imagining like this whole Ned Ryerson, a whole Ned Ryerson movie or just a whole Ned Ryerson series of shorts. I would love a Ned Ryerson series of shorts. Stephen Tobolowski. Wings. Oh, <laughs> bing, bing. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> he, he, he must have starred in his own movie at some point. Uh, oh, I don't. Yeah, I'm sure he had. He must have. He must have been at some independent film where they went. Let's sure. Because he's been in everything, you know. You're so right. You're 100% right. Yeah. yeah. We're back to Gobbler's Knob. <laughs> I'm going to laugh every time I say that that sentence. Um, uh, and he's clearly freaking out. And he's trying to talk to Rita about it. We really have to talk. Come on. Hey. It's a creative meeting. Forget it. Wait a second. We've got work to do. No, I don't. I've already done it twice. Now, when you get finished, come and meet me in the diner. In the versions of the of the scene getting replayed where Phil does not do the, the shot, mm. does Rita go on camera to do it? It's a great question. I don't know. I think she does. Yeah? Okay. We got to get the shot. You're yeah, the I producer. So. You got to get right. the, I mean, you're not putting Larry on camera. No. You know? No. But maybe you take the shot and then, like, you hope Phil will voice it over later. Oh, yeah. You could do, yeah. yeah. Yeah, you probably. I think you, I think you would do both. I think you would do it on camera just in case, and then you would get all your B roll and all the stuff you need, hoping yeah. that you can get Phil later. Right. We're in the diner, which they built for the. I mean, they, there was a. I forget what kind of store this was, but it was a different kind of store that they turned into a diner. Uh, and there we get to meet Robin Duke. Yeah. Who Harold Ramis has known for decades and worked with her forever. You know, she was on SNL. I love yeah. Robin Duke. Yeah, her her greatest sketch is the one she did with Mr. T, Mr. and Mrs. T. Um, uh, oh my God, I remember that, <laughs> Mr. And Mrs., Mr. and Mrs. T. Uh, something margarita mix, and it's just her dressed as Mr. T, not in blackface, but totally like as his wife, and they're selling margarita mix, and she's yelling, and doing promos just like Mr. T does in Rocky Three. So it, you've never. If you've never seen the sketch, please go and watch the sketch. Maybe we'll put it up on the Facebook. Yeah, we'll put up. Uh, if we'll it's put available, up, but it's so good. So um, good. Uh, and she uh, she has a great character in this in this movie. I think yeah. she does a great job. Um, and now Phil reveals what's going on. He says, "Rita, I'm reliving the same day over and over. Groundhog Day today." Okay, I'm waiting for the punchline. And she's just going, as you would, like, yeah. why would you be making up this crazy story? I'm not making it up. I am asking you for help. Okay, what do you want me to do? I don't know. You're a producer. Come up with something. And then says his name, Phil, and two guys in the next table, which is Rick Overton and Rick, Rick Dukeman, mm. Dukoman, I don't know if I'm saying his name right, um, who are stand-up comics who've been in lots of stuff. They 
go off on the fact that he's named Phil, like Poxitani Phil, the groundhog. <laughs> Look up for your shadow there, pal. <laughs> Morons, your bus is leaving. Which, of course, is a Bill Murray line. Yeah. Um, I got the chance to interview Rick for huh? um, an episode of The Deep Cut on my... Which, which Rick? Because they're both... Rick, oh, sorry, Rick Overton. Sorry, Rick Overton. Hmm. Because he was part of that documentary that came out about Robin Williams. Mm. Um, and so he was one of the uh, uh, producers on it. Uh, and uh, he, he, they were very kind. They gave me like 45 minutes to sit there oh, with wow. him and another producer. So if, if you guys want to see more with Rick, because he became really good friends with Robin near the end of his life. And so he was there with a lot of stuff going on in the Bay Area and um, the festivals that were going on with Robin and stuff. So it, first of all, it's a great documentary. Um, and then... The conversation with Rick, he's just a very uh, interesting guy on so many levels. So, yeah, I, I would recommend you all watch that. He's so cool. So, yeah. So, first of all, we should also post a link to that on, on our, oh, yeah. all our social media so people sure. can find it. Second of all, there was – in people from the Bay Area would know this. There was a show, a radio show called Alex Bennett, and hmm. or a host named Alex Bennett. And he was sort of like Howard Stern before Howard Stern. Oh, wow. He was a comedy show. And it was on for decades. And yeah. what it was was a morning show and all the stand-up comics would come. So I heard Rick Overton on oh, that. Yeah. And so they were just, it would just be the funniest damn show. Like three or four stand-up comics in the room, like Bobby Slayton and, you know, and uh, Bobcat Goldthwait and all of them just being ridiculous. And that's what I listened to when I was going to high, on the drive to high school, you know, yeah. was yeah. listening to Alex Bennett. Um, oh, and the movie, uh, real quick, is called Robin's Wish. Uh, so that's mm. the documentary there. And it's. Uh, you guys can watch it. There's a different documentary, obviously, on um, on HBO Max, but this one is also on Max, but it's a different title called Robin's Wish. So there. Um, Larry walks in and says, and this is the line that's going to become important. You guys ready? You better get going if we're going to stay ahead of the weather. Let's talk about it back in Pittsburgh. I'm not going back to Pittsburgh. Why not? Because of the blizzard. I thought you said that was going to hit Altoona. Yeah, I know that's what I said. And it's him saying that. Yeah. That makes Rita go, I think something is wrong. Bill, I think you need help. That's what I've been saying, Rita. I need help. Cut to the doctor's office with Dr. Harold Ramis. Yes. Um, <laughs> I like his explanation of why he's the doctor. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I'm not saying that this is the truth, but I do like the explanation. So this is what's called a cover set. And you always have a few sets that are indoors where you can shoot anytime you have weather outdoors and you have to cancel the outdoor shoot and you want to shoot indoors. And when you have a cover set, you also kind of have to have a cover actor because you don't know when you're going to shoot this scene. So you have to have an actor that's around. And so Harold Ramis said, well, I'm around. <laughs> so that is why he says he's the cover actor. Well... No spots, no clots, no tumors, no lesions, mm, no aneurysms. You know what you may need, Mr. Connors? A biopsy. A psychiatrist. Cut to a psychiatrist office. And a very <laughs> young, obviously slightly overwhelmed psychiatrist. This is David Paskesi, is his name. And he very nervously says, That's an unusual problem, Mr. Connors. Uh, most of my work is with couples, families. I have an alcoholic now. I have an alcoholic now is a fantastic line. Yeah. So, what do I do? I think we should meet again. How's tomorrow for you? I think this moment of how's tomorrow for you is the moment where you start to realize how impossible the situation is. Yeah, yeah. Because, you, you know, in a way, 
Murray is who we're watching. And again, this is what makes such this is such an interesting film. He's antagonist and protagonist at the same time. But he's also the guy we're watching, and then he becomes the audience's point of view because yeah. we're experiencing it with him, uh, what he's realizing. We're not watching him necessarily experience it. We're experiencing it at the same time as we're watching him, yeah. Well, and this is why Harold Ramis was 100% right to not have this movie start in the middle yeah. with him already knowing everything, is that you have to go through the process of figuring out what yeah. this is like as he goes through that process. And um, some of you may not know this, but the actor who plays uh, the psychiatrist, that's a very, very young uh, David Pasquese, who also plays um, uh, Julie Louis-Dreyfus' ex-husband, Andrew, in Veep. Oh. Saying, and he was just the major domo in the Book of Boba Fett. So he's, oh. he looks completely different now than when he does in that uh, scene there. It's a very funny scene. So I had never watched Veep, and I literally just started it a couple of days ago, and I'm two episodes in. Are you gonna, are you, you're in for a great ride, brother. You're That's what I've heard. Way. That's what I've heard. Uh, we're in a bowling alley and Phil is rapsing poetically about a much better day than this. I was in the Virgin Islands once. I met a girl. We ate lobster, drank pina coladas. At sunset, we made love like sea otters. That was a pretty good day. Why couldn't I get that day? Because you're not going to learn anything from that day, Phil. Yeah. <laughs> Well, and now and now he's sitting with Gus and Ralph, the two guys that made fun of his name earlier on in the diner. And I like Gus giving his little bit of wisdom of like, you know, some people see the glasses half full and some see it as half empty. I peg you as a glasses half empty kind of guy. Am I right? Do you think this is in here to kind of hang, as you said before, Steve, hang the lantern on the thing, on the whole situation in case people are getting it? it? Like, it's such an odd scene to throw in the middle of this movie. I, I, I think, I, I think it is definitely there to make it very clear what's going on. Yeah. And I also, you know, the, being trapped with in the world with Gus and Ralph is the perfect contrast to the girl on the beach in the Virgin Islands with the lobster. And you know, that this is a perfect example of why this is the opposite. And the, and the next line, I think the next line, it hit me way harder watching it now than it hit me when I first saw it when I was, you know, 22 or so 23, whatever age I was. What would you do if you were stuck in one place? And every day was exactly the same, and nothing that you did mattered. No, that sums it up for me. <laughs> yeah, right. Because that's the moment. Because when I was twenty-three, I hadn't had that feeling. Of course. Today, I've had that feeling many times in my life. Yeah, yeah. And again, as we've said numerous times on the Cinephiles, the great films are the ones you can watch at different periods of your life and get something out of them. And sure enough, this is a film that you can watch at a much older age. Um, and it gets completely different things from some of these interactions. Well, and really, to be honest, when, when I mentioned that I was in a grumpy mood and you asked me what, what was going on, this was what it was. It was really this, it was the, I'm doing the same thing. Uh, you know, I'm just going to be doing, you know, I just had that feeling of mm -hmm. that, you know, yeah, sure. it didn't feel good about it. We head outside. Uh, <laughs> Ralph does some great drunk acting, trying to get in the car. You want to throw up here? You want to throw up in the car? I think both. <laughs> and again, I will say, much like the shower, the dude that says he wants to throw it both in the, on the street and in the car, you don't get in the car with that guy and sit on the, on all on the front seat. 
<laughs> yeah. yeah. Put that guy in the back seat. But of course, for the shot, you want them all in the front seat together. Yeah. Harold Ramis in the commentary track told a really interesting, not an interesting story, but made a really interesting point here that I wanted to point out, which is because I think it's really good, which is that when people ask him about what is the job of a director, he talks about this scene. And this is what he says, is that this is what directing is like, is they, they said, okay, we need a car for the scene. What kind of car should we have? And, and Harold Ramis says, I don't know, like a red car with a, a red convertible car. And they go, okay, is it a nice car or a not nice car? Not nice car, old car, new car, old car. Should it be clean or should it be dirty? It should be dirty. What color should the dirt be? Gray or brown? Brown. And he's like 28 questions that started with what kind of car is this? And he's like, that is what directing is all day. And I'm like, that is exactly what directing is all day. Wow. You know, yeah. just pe pe people are asking constant questions and you are just coming up with it. And you, of course you don't know. Mm -hmm. That's just what you think. You're like, okay, I think that. Um, but, but, what's but what's interesting about it too is that that car creates character. You get a sense of who Ralph and Gus are yeah. by all those details on that car. Let me ask you guys a question. Shoot. What if there were no tomorrow? No tomorrow. That would mean there would be no consequences. There would be no hangovers. We could do whatever we wanted. And this is sort of the first moment that this has occurred to Phil. Yeah. He says, that's true. We could do whatever we want. And what he wants at that moment is to knock over a mailbox. <laughs> <laughs> and then the police are after them. And obviously you're supposed to pull over. But he doesn't see any consequences. So he just swerves into a, you know, swerves and drives the cop car into some garbage cans. And then he says that this is all Bill Murray improvised. Same thing your whole life. Clean up your room, stand up straight, pick up your feet, take it like a man. Be nice to your sister. Don't mix beer and wine, ever. Oh, yeah. Don't drive on the railroad tracks. I think it's Ralph who goes, I, I kind of, I'm good with that one. Please don't. They're, I think they are really underreacting to what's yeah. happening. They're being chased by a cop on a railroad track. And then this train car is coming right at them. And and again, Harold Ramis said an interesting, there's so many ways to, to interpret this film. One of the interesting ones that he said is that it's sort of the evolution of growing into adulthood. And it's your teenage years. Your, this is the adolescent moment where you don't really see consequences to things. And so you start making choices and, you know, breaking stuff and not understanding that these things are all going to have consequences. And that's where Phil is right now. Yeah. Swerves off the train tracks at the last moment because he's not quite ready to die uh, in this world. Mm -hmm. Cops pull up. Yeah. Uh, three cheeseburgers, two large fries, uh, two chocolate shakes, one large Coke. And some flapjacks. Too early for flapjacks? I love that. And then we end up in jail. Yeah. Interesting thing about the jail. So you remember I mentioned that courthouse? Yes. That, that courthouse is no longer a courthouse, and I believe it had been turned into like a hotel. And in the hotel is a restaurant. And the restaurant is the one where they shot, shoot the bar scenes. So that is the restaurant in the hotel in the courthouse. There was a jail in the basement of the courthouse, and the restaurant left the jail. And you can, when you eat at this restaurant, eat in the jail cell of the old courthouse where this famous trial was. That is the jail cell they're in right now. Is the jail cell in the restaurant? That's funny. The the cell door slam closed, and we're back to the alarm clock. And I've got you, babe. And this time, Phil sits up and is thrilled. He just realized this magical power he has. 
he goes downstairs and now he asks Mrs. Lancaster all the questions, you know, answers all the questions before she asks him. He sees uh, Ned Ryerson and punches him right in the face. This is hilarious. Yeah. That's one of the funniest moments. I just remember that moment. I will always remember that moment. Out of nowhere, just yeah. clocks him. Um, starts to step in that puddle, but doesn't. And this is where we see, oh, he's starting to learn. Right. Um, and then he's, we're in the diner and he is sitting and there was just a massive amount of food in front of him. Mm. <laughs> this goes to me to the um, defending your life uh, level of the fantasy, mm. <laughs> which, by the way, is probably one of my favorite things about defending your life. I'm like, I want to go to that heaven. I like to see a man of advancing years throwing caution to the wind. It's inspiring in a way. My years are not advancing as fast as you might think. Don't you worry about cholesterol, lung cancer, love handles? I don't worry about anything anymore. I think he's gone to a new place. I, I think he is genuinely like, oh, I can have fun in this strange little universe I'm in. Yeah, sure. And then he stuffs a whole piece of angel food cake in his mouth. By the way, at the beginning of the scene, as, as we've talked about many times, you, actors have the option to have a spit bucket. Mm. When they're doing scenes where they have to eat a lot, because it's hard to eat a lot of stuff all day. Yeah, Bill Murray sounds like uh, sort of stridently refused the spit bucket oh, and wow. deeply regretted it by the time they got to this angel food cake. <laughs> and she goes into a bit of poetry. The wretch concentered all in self, living shall forfeit fair renown, and doubly dying shall go down. I really don't buy her reading this, saying this poetry. It yeah. just doesn't work for me. Okay. I know that they say in her character that she'd studied poetry and French poetry, and that's what she's into. It's just, this is where I don't think Andy McDowell pulls off this moment. Right? Oh, yeah, no, right. Again, yeah. limited, yeah. Are you guys ready? We better get going if we're going to stay ahead of the weather. Thanks, Larry. Well, would you like a doggy bag? No, I'm going to stay here and finish. I thought you hated this town. Well, it's beginning to grow on me. And as they're as he's heading out, he walks past Nancy, yeah. which is Marita Garargadi, and sits down and says, What's your name? Nancy Taylor. And you are? What high school did you go to? And who was her 12th grade English teacher? And she finally gives the answer that it was Mrs. Walsh. And he says, Nancy, Lincoln, Walsh. Okay, thanks very much. Cut to, again... Pennsylvania polka. That music is just so, because it just pulls you to this place. It is so damn recognizable. And there is, man, Nancy Taylor, she obviously loves Groundhog Day, but she's sitting dancing happily by herself. It seems very strange yeah. to me. And he walks up and says, Nancy? Nancy Taylor? Which to me sounds exactly like Phil? Yeah. Phil Connor? Exactly, yeah. And he says that he sat next to her in Mrs. Walsh's class. And she obviously doesn't remember him. And then... Listen, I got to go do this report. Um, Are you a reporter? I'm a weatherman with Channel 9 Pittsburgh. And now she's suddenly very interested. And he goes, stay right here and points. And I love... It's just a good sign of acting that she kind of imitates his energy when yeah. and points down as well. And promises she'll stay. Cut to... The fake fire in his room, and he is making out with Nancy. Yeah, yeah. Who he calls Rita. Yeah, twice. Who's Rita? How should I know? What is this, some kind of one-night stand? On the contrary, Nancy. I love you. I've always loved you. 
This is going to seem sudden, but Nancy, will you be my wife? Now, the fact that this works on Nancy, yeah. how does that make you think about Nancy? I think that makes me think Nancy's in a in a shitty situation that town yeah. with a limited amount of choices. Yeah, and here's a guy who's a news uh, a guy who's a weatherman, uh, so has some level of celebrity, and he is apparently from her past, and so she's kind of a lost soul, it seems like, and he's like taking advantage of the situation, so to speak. Yeah. Nancy. Whatever. And by the way, this is our second Marita Garrity film. Uh, oh, really? So what's our first one? I don't know. Broadcast news. News. She, she is the rape victim that Will Hurt, William Hurt is is wow. interviewing that he fakes the tears for. That is the actress wow. who plays the rape victim that ends up being the seminal moment that breaks up Holly Hunter and William Hurt in that movie. It, it, it's so funny because when I find the name, I it, you know I click on a link and I do a quick yeah. glance and I didn't see anything. That, so so I'm so glad that you found that one because I didn't find that. That's great. Yeah, I, I remember her uh, distinctly because that scene is so her her performance in that scene is so yeah. uh, moving. You know, and and when she's recounting what happened to her, and so to see that her playing this character here, it's a nice like change of pace, so to speak. Well, and she's good in this too. It's always oh, interesting, yes. like yes. people that have these careers that like obviously this is someone who can do the job. You know, yeah. Yeah, yeah. He's sitting like kind of on a on a on a wall or in wa- no tie, and he's predicting everything that's happening. A gust of wind, dog bark, cue the truck. Okay, I want to return to your earlier conversation. Ooh, here we go. Yes. H- how long has he been here now? Oh, okay. I mean, is this is this the scene right before he takes the money from the armored yes. car? Yes. Okay. This is probably maybe a year or two. I think I it say. has to be at least a couple of years. Yeah, right? Because to, to be able to know when every gust of yeah. wind comes. Yeah. yeah. You don't, and, and I mean, it's like, because we don't know, we, you get the sense that from him uh, being put in jail and waking up yeah. to him eating all the food, that probably maybe was one or two times. That was fairly close. And that the Nancy thing, it's like, well, he met Nancy, got some information about her. And then it was probably the next day that that he hooked up with her, right? Yeah. But we don't know how many times he hooked up with Nancy, you know? Oh, I think it's multiple times. Right. Uh, you know, let's let's be real. Yeah. Let's be real. We're not going to try to be gross. But if a man knows that he can sleep with her, he's going to try everything possible multiple times to try to see how far he can go what kind of positions. I mean, I'm sure he was, because of, remember he said he made love to that woman like sea otters. So clearly he's uh, got some experience in this department. So I'm sure he probably multiple times, but of course that would make him look like not necessarily a great person. And so uh, they keep it to one time, but I'm sure he's done it multiple times by this point. And I think the, this is the only scene time we see him like case the armored car. So I'm sure he has gone to every section of that city multiple times to see all the things that are happening at the same time, or, sorry, all the things that are happening at the same time, yes, in different areas of the city. So he has gone throughout that city for almost every second, every, every minute, every hour yeah. to see what is going on in all those seconds, minutes, and hours throughout that day. So much so, as you said, Steve. He can predict the wind. He can predict what, how Robin Duke is going to come up and get the change and when the guy's going to bend down and he's going to take that money. So 
that is all there. So it has been multiple, multiple days that he's been doing this. Yeah. I mean, I think, first of all, I think there were many times with Nancy and I think there were many other Nancy's. Oh, I mean, probably. This is, yeah. It's a whole town. So see, I think he's done all sorts of things, yeah. you know, I think he's, and, and, and then he happened to be walking by as, as, as you say, he's exploring all the things that go on in this town. And he saw this moment where the quarters got dropped right. and then he watched, probably has watched this moment 20 times, 30 yeah. times, yeah. you know? So this is a, he's been here forever. And as you said, what, what happens is are these worst armored car drivers ever. <laughs> One of them goes in, comes back. Robin Duke comes out. They drop some quarters. And at the moment, then he's counting it down that he, she drops the quarters. He walks up and steals a bag of money. Yeah. And it's not like he, like, who knows what he even needs this money for? Like or what he right. does with the money. It doesn't, it doesn't really matter. We yeah. just see that he is trying stuff. Um, then we cut to, and this is the weirdest one of them, a movie theater, a Mercedes pulls up. Maybe that's what he used the money for was to go buy this Mercedes, I guess. And he gets out dressed as Clint Eastwood from like the good, the bad and the ugly, basically. Yeah. And, uh, and a French maid gets out of the car, which is Sandy Moxmeyer. Yeah. Um, and she goes, I I thought we were going to a costume party. It's like I said, I love this film. I've seen it over a hundred times. As you said, many Nancys, and certainly this was one of the Nancys. And she is super hot in that outfit, by the way. But yeah, she, look, look, the French maid is a thing because for a reason, you know, like the absolutely true. Well, it's just like to get to the point where you're dressing up as a cowboy, tell this woman you're going to a costume party to go to a movie. Yeah, you've been through this a lot this well, is like, and he's in, right and, and nancy comes by and right he says right. hey nancy and she completely like ignores him and he says oh my old fiance doesn't even remember me now so clearly this guy has been indulging in all his infantile yeah. fantasies in many many ways and here he's dressed up as clint eastwood the, probably the worst looking dress up as clint eastwood <laughs> ever as clint eastwood and he has this woman dressing up as a French maid. He's tricked her into dressing up as a French maid to go to a movie theater, right? So he is absolutely pushing the boundaries, fucking with people, indulging himself um, to match indulging the food. So he's doing all of this. Um, but eventually, of course, that's going to run out because you do just run out of all the things you could possibly do and indulge in the situation. And eventually, you're going to have to take a look at yourself when you're done with all of this stuff, you know, so... Well, and and I think, you know, to get to the cowboy French made costume party movie fantasy, you've already exhausted a lot of stuff. Oh, um, yes. A lot you've been, of stuff. Yeah. And I'm sure it, well, th- this is why th- I think this is why the movie was more stressful to me because I was really aware of. No, he's been he might have been here a decade already. Yeah, probably. Or more. Or more. You know, yeah, yeah. Like, and I just go, oh my God, this is so, it is such a horrible purgatory. And it also, I actually think this is a good point of why it's important not to show how Phil got here, what, what made this happen. Right. Like what, if you had the idea of like, he was mean to a girlfriend, which was one of their ideas and she cursed him, you know, like, and, Mm. and it was, well, then I would feel that punishment does not fit that crime. You know what I mean? Because this is a terrible punishment. Well, also, it would you you'd have to write it in that he is trying to get her to reverse the curse or trying to get it trying to yeah. be a good person to stop her. But in fact, that that would defeat the purpose of the film, which is that it comes out of nowhere, and you have to deal with it. And yeah. so, I like that that they didn't do that again, as you said, Steve, so correctly. Yeah. Yeah. Rita, if you only had one day to live, what would you do with it? 
What are you looking for, Phil? A date for the weekend? No, I'm just interested in you. And she is totally distrustful of him, mm -hmm. and he keeps asking questions. He says, Okay, so talk to me. Let me buy you a cup of coffee. And a donut. All right. And so now we're back at the diner. And again, it's the same time at the diner, so all the same things are going to happen that we're going to notice, like the cry, someone dropping a, a tray and some other sounds that are going to happen we're going to be aware of. Yeah. I guess I want what everybody wants, you know, career, love, marriage, children. Are you seeing anyone? I think this is getting too personal. I don't think I'm ready to share this with you. Because he's a jerk, because she knows that she's a jerk. Yeah. Finally, he asks what her perfect guy is. Well, first of all, he's too humble to know he's perfect. That's me. <laughs> which is a perfect, which is a perfect joke. He's intelligent, supportive, funny. Me, me, me. There's this moment where she says he's kind, sensitive, gentle. He's not afraid to cry in front of me. This is a man we're talking about, right? Um, which I think is the perfect line for his character at this moment. Oh, yeah. Know? Also yeah. for the 90s. Right? Yeah, totally. I am really close on this one. Really, really close. Do you think Phil thinks he's actually really close on this? No, I think Phil is working her. We've seen him through Nancy. Now we saw the French maid, right? So as we said, he's probably been through a number of these women in this town in multiple ways. All right. Now he's finally worked up the courage to try to do this with Rita. Let me tell you something about Lotharios and dudes who sleep with a lot of women. They are intimidated by an by a woman that they can't that that they can't think that they can seduce into bed. They're intimidated by a woman who they see as more intelligent or accomplished or whatever. Now, it's not a denigration of the other women that they sleep with quickly, because maybe those women are just sleep with a dude for themselves, for their own reasons, right? This is a different situation. But the guy who sleeps with a lot of women, once he comes upon someone who really challenges him in many ways, he is very hesitant to go after her or to try to go after her because he knows they're going at some subconscious level, she's going to see through him. And so I think what's happening here with Phil is that Phil went through all the women that he knew he could seduce because he's done this multiple times. He knows what the signs are. He knows how to talk to them. He knows how to get them to do certain things. Fine. But remember, he said Rita twice when he was with Nancy. And yeah. that tells you that even from the beginning, because we do have that shot near the beginning of the movie where he sees her playing with the the weather, the blue screen or whatever. There's a different look on his face of like, he actually thinks she's attractive, but he doesn't know how to approach it. But what he defaults to and starts to default to at this section of the movie is his tactics that he's used on other women. He's built up the courage to do it, but he has no fucking knowledge how to do it. And so what you see him trying to do is the same shit he has done with all the other women um, uh, in the town. Uh, up to this point. So it's an interesting moment in the film that he finally tries to um, woo Rita here. Dude, it's such a good point. And it's, and it's, it's so, I really didn't think of it. And it's now, now that you say it, it's totally obvious is that he was attracted to Rita from the beginning, which we, yes. he, he says that later. Yeah. He chose not to go after Rita and go after Nancy and probably a whole bunch of other people. And my guess is Phil, the weatherman has enough fame that he probably was able to sleep around a fair amount, yes, you know, and have very shallow relationships because that's all he knows how to do. Right. And that this gave him an opportunity because literally it's one day he never can see, never can see them again. They'll never remember him Yeah, to have even shallower relationships. And he did that, as we said, 
for like a de- for years and years and years he did that before yeah. working up the courage to actually go after the person he is really attracted to. Right. You know. And then but then the other thing is his way of doing it. Yeah. is uh, well, well, let's get into it and then we'll talk about it. So, yeah. so first of all, he rips what I, who am not a car person, am guessing are like the distributor caps off of the van. There's a, there's a couple that sees him. That, by the way, is Harold Ramis's cousin and his wife. Oh. That's who that couple is. We're in a bar and he offers to buy her a drink. Okay. Jim Beam, ice, water. For you, miss? Sweet vermouth and the rocks with the twist, please. And then we'll replay the scene. Can I buy you a drink? Okay. Uh, sweet vermouth, rocks with a twist, please. For you, miss? The same. That's my favorite drink. Well, what should we drink to? To the groundhog. I always drink to world peace. A couple things about this scene. First of all, uh, people that always drink to world peace are not people that I, 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 I all for world peace. <laughs> but like, Don't get me wrong, I'm all for world I'm peace. I'm pro-world peace. But like I always drink to world peace is like, well, you're going to be a lot of fun. <laughs> so maybe I am a bit like Phil. I think this is an amazing acting exercise. Yeah. Because Annie McDowell doing the scene is the exact same person, has the same backstory getting to this point, same moment before, same motivations, same feelings about Phil. And then she, ha- you have to really, because we, we said many times, the acting is about listening and reacting. Yeah. And so each time the scene is going to go in a slightly different direction. And so she has to play it exactly the same and then perfectly respond to when it changes with changes of her own, you know? Right. Right. And now we're in version three, same thing, except now when it's time to a toast, he says, I like to say a prayer and drink to world peace. Here's, here's what I think about Harold Ramis saying the thing about this as being sort of the stages of growing up and we are in the adolescent stage where there were no consequences. To me, this is the stage in your life where you're trying to figure out what the world expects you to be. And you're trying to be that like, Mm. you're trying to figure out what the world wants or what am I supposed to be? You're not being yourself. You're trying to put, to play the role of what an adult is. You know what I mean? Right. Right. And that's what he's trying. This isn't him. He's trying to play a role to get the thing that he wants, not understanding that he has to be himself to get what he wants. You know, I kind of see the film through the five stages of grief, I guess. Yeah. Right. You have the denial when he's experimenting how this is all happening. Then the anger when he is just being a super dick to everybody. And you could even throw in the fact that he's trying to sleep with all, that he tries to sleep with as many women as possible in multiple different ways. That's him working out some anger of hatred towards women or hatred towards himself. You could say the anger is there and making fun of the two guys and their lives and whatever. All of that is the anger is there. The bargaining is where we're at now with this situation where Mm. he's now trying to like, how do I come to terms with this? How do I get her to be with me? And how do I create this existence? Oh, I'll just, you know, use the stuff, use the knowledge, and I'll like find a way to create this new existence. Like I can make this work for me. And so that's the bargaining stage that we're in now with Rita, I think. Yeah, I I, I think that's totally, totally agree. Um, we we have some fudge and he offers some white chocolate and she says, Don't make me sick. And he says, and the perfect performance. No white chocolate. You know, just you could see like the, yeah. the cataloging of information happening, which is what he's been doing for years in this town. Yes. Do you ever have deja vu? Didn't you just ask me that? 
we end up at a German restaurant. And this part of that we're going to have to play over is the end of the scene where she says they're talking about her career and that it's a million miles away from where she started because she studied 19th century French poetry. And he bursts out laughing and then has to starts with what a waste of time and then has to pull it back. Yeah. So we yeah. replay it again. And this time when she says something about 19th century French poetry, he reads a poem in French because now he speaks French. How much time passed between the last version of this and this one? Oh, probably six months. Yeah. I mean, at, le at least at least a month to learn, to learn French some French yeah. with, with the way he delivers it here, which yeah. there's a semblance of expertise here. So, um, but then again, maybe he had to learn it for the film quickly, Steve. So maybe, right. you know, yeah. yeah. Well, the I, where I, where I go, like, I'm not sure how long is like, well, how good is his French? How much yeah. did he study? Did he learn to say this one thing or could he have a conversation in French? Good point. My guess is he put a lot of, but there's a lot of time that we're not seeing that's happening. Yeah. Yeah. Because like now we get to the snowman. How many times has he done the snowman before this time? Right. Good point. Yes. Because now he has the 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 coal and the pipe and all the stuff. Well, I don't think he had that the first time he did it. I haven't done this since I was a kid. Me neither. And I'm like, I bet you did it yesterday. <laughs> you know, I bet you've done it 20 times in a row, 50 times in a row. And he's talking about how he wants kids and, and then they get hit by a snowball and they get in a snowball fight and everyone's laughing and it's really cute and then she falls down and instead of helping her up he falls next to her and they're very close mm. and it's obviously romantic and there's obviously a connection and then you get the great great fucking ray charles song you don't know me yeah it's a fantastic song i love ray charles I, yeah i absolutely love him um and then we're dancing in the gazebo and it's you can feel that this is working mm -hmm. walking home and he invites her up i don't think i should feel Oh, I don't think you should either. That's why I'm just going to show you this one thing and kick you right out. Just give me one minute. <laughs> and so they go inside. And, you know, A, this is the room where he was with Nancy. Yeah. Uh, and probably a whole bunch of other women. And sh they kiss a little bit. And then she says, I don't know, Phil. I don't think we should do this. I don't either. Mm. You know what? On second thought, I think we should. <laughs> it's the perfect end to a perfect day. And he starts to push a little bit. And then she starts to pull away. And as this is happening and his desperation is growing, the, the painfulness of this situation just really hit me hard, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Because for him, it's like the psychiatrist said, can you come, why don't you come in tomorrow? Yeah. But there is no tomorrow. Right. If he doesn't close this deal with the woman that he loves right now, the whole thing starts over. Yeah. Yeah. You know? So, and that's an interesting thing when you look at it, right? So for him, he wants the immediate gratification of sleeping with her. Now that yeah. he, over these multiple time loops, he's gotten her to this point, right? Yeah. And instead of looking at it as, oh, I get to woo her again all over again tomorrow, I get to try, you know, I get to do all this all over again and discover her all over again. He gets uh, locked into the carnal satisfaction, right. which again and something I learned in psychiatry, was in therapy rather, is that like if you're constantly seeking for the carnal satisfaction without actually appreciating the person you're with, um, if you're looking for a love relationship, it's never going to lead to a healthy relationship, right? Because people who try to sleep quickly with people are constantly looking for validation. 
the sleeping in their minds has become the yeah. validation of their self-worth. They're more afraid to put themselves out there and be vulnerable because that rejection is much more brutal than a rejection for sex. And so the, what you see here is him trying to bet her in this moment, now that he's gotten to her to this moment, he's trying to bet her quickly so he can, as you said, lock the deal down and, and get the satisfaction of it all. But he's completely looking at it wrong, which she's about to make very clear to him in the next few seconds of the scene. It, 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 I, you're so on the money and the, the, it, and I think it's perfect in terms of his character because it's like, I, the way to prove that someone loves you is sex. You know what I mean? Right. And so that's what he needs or what he thinks he needs. Yeah. And so he is desperately, and, and he has literally probably put years of his life yes. into accomplishing this goal. Yeah. And so as it starts to fray at the edges and she starts to resist, he gets really intense and it's, yeah. you know, and it is, it's a horrible thing because in the non, well, in any way that we look at it for, for Rita, she's not in a time loop. She doesn't know any of these no. things that's going on. Right. She's in the room with a man who she just met, who she thought was a jerk when he met. And it's kind of showed maybe not to be a jerk. It's starting to get real set, scary and physical with him in his hotel room. Yes. You know, and it's a scary scene. You have to stay. Oh, no, really, Phil. I'm tired. We can see each other tomorrow. No. Tonight. Oh. It's gotta be tonight. And he, then he says, and it's so interesting because it's a perfect parallel with Nancy. When he told Nancy, I love you, and will you be my wife, that worked on Nancy. Right. When he tells Rita he loves her. You love me. I love you. You don't even know me. Yeah. Which is what the reaction Nancy should have had was. <laughs> right. You know, but Rita's a much stronger person. Oh, no. I can't believe I fell for this. This whole day has just been one long setup. Which, of course, it has. She's exactly right. This whole day has been one long setup. And she says, and I hate fudge. Yuck. And he says in that same tone. No white chocolate, no fudge. Right, because he's still... Still cataloging. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. What are you doing? Are you making some kind of list or something? No. Did you call up my friends and ask them what I like and no. what I don't like? No. Is, is this what love is for you? And it, she's exactly right. Is that... Yeah. It's like, oh, if I could just... Because he is lying to her. To get to, he's trying to convince her that he is somebody that he's not in order to get her to do something that she wouldn't ordinarily do. You must be crazy. I could never love someone like you, Phil, because you'll never love anyone but yourself. That's not true. I don't even like myself. And I think that is true. Yeah. That's the 100%, truth. 100%. And it's so great. Look, I know that Ruben has said in numerous interviews, the writer, that he was just writing a fun you know, a situation of a guy caught it, but there's much more going on here. And so I don't, whether on purpose or not, there was, mo there's more in this uh, story when you break it down, that's a lot of fun to explore. And certainly this moment here where she has the magic wand to look through him, like she can see through him and yeah. all his tactics. And what the film shows is, and it's the lesson that people watching the film should get is that, he is using um, tactics on her that are not that are uh, beneath a woman of her intelligence, right? And she can see through them because she's intelligent. And so he doesn't have the tools to to um, woo. And I don't mean seduce; I mean woo. I mean legitimately make a woman care for him. Um, he doesn't have the tools at that point in Phil's 
construction as a human being through all these multiple time loops. He does not have the ability, no matter what he memorizes or learns or whatever, he doesn't have the ability to win her at this point because he doesn't know what it is yet that he's supposed to do in order to be an authentic and vulnerable person for her. And he's does, he hasn't learned it yet. And he has to learn it. And we're about to go on that journey with him as he slides into depression about the whole situation before figuring it out. Yeah. Well, and I think that's not true. I don't even like myself is the key mm-hmm. is that he, he's never been himself. He won't be his, he, he can only manufacture a facade because he hates himself. And yes. I think, and it's funny. He doesn't think anyone will love him because he hates yeah. himself. Yeah, exactly. Well, and I think that while it sounds like some of Bill Murray's behavior on this set was pretty shitty, mm. I also think this movie is not the great movie that it is without Bill Murray wanting to do that more philosophical, heavier yeah. thing. And and again, I don't know this. I have no evidence for this, but I think that's not true. I don't even like myself. Yeah, I think that's a real line for Bill Murray sometimes. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it. Certainly was a, to be honest, it was certainly a real line for me um, when everything went down. I mean, I used to sleep with many women in my 20s and 30s and whatever, and it wasn't until, and I hated myself. And it wasn't until, you know, I had the breakdown in 2016, which I've talked about already, that I went into this deep therapy about what it is that is really at the core of all of this. And once you discover what's at the core of all of this, you can let all that go and start to build back. And, you know, not not an arrogant way, fall in love with yourself, but start to appreciate yourself in different ways and find value within yourself. And that's no coincidence that it led me to where I am now with the woman I am now. So I understand Phil's journey. I really do. You know, I've been in those situations that Phil has in the movie, and I totally understand what it is. And you do feel a sense of like when someone you really care about that you see as someone above you rejects you it can send you tumbling down and you have to kind of go back to square one and have the strength to find out what it is about yourself that you need to fix or change or repair and come to terms with so that you can build yourself back up and reconstruct yourself into a better version of yourself, which there's nothing wrong with that. A lot of us are broken. The world is broken. So it's a matter of how do you find your way back and fix those things that are broken you know, so that you can find a a fulfilling, healthy relationship. It's not easy to do. And so to see it happening within this, what looks to be a surface lighthearted comedy, it's fun to see that underneath the surface of this film, you know? First of all, well said, dude, that was beautifully said. Mm. And second of all, that's, that's what makes this movie so resonant is like, no, yes, none of us have been trapped in a time loop and we might not be dicks the way that Phil Connors is doing this film, but we've all felt stuck in the rut We've all tried to pretend that we're someone else to get people to like us. We've all tried to put up facades. We've all tried, you know, had moments of, you know, I know I don't even like myself. Like we've all, we've all been there and this, and and, you know, I actually think of this movie more as science fiction because it does a very (laughs) science fiction thing, which is that it, it, it goes, it poses a what if question and then explores the human condition through the what if question, you know, what if you live the same day over and over again? Give me another chance. That's for making me care about you. And walks out. Yeah. Um, and then we're back to the snowman because he's trying it again the next day. Mm-hmm. And this might be among the most painful scenes in the movie with him spouting the same dialogue. Golly, 
Really, I want kids, lots of kids. I want to adopt, I want to have my own kids, I want to have foster kids. But it's just slightly crazed. It's slightly pushed too far. It's desperate. slightly desperate. Exactly. We Desperate. Yes. Yeah. And, and, it, and it just, and you can see she's kind of having fun, but then she's feeling how weird this is. Yeah. And then when the snowball fight starts and he's just a little too intense yeah. and then she falls down. And of course he's fallen down next to her 50 times, a hundred times. And it got romantic. And this time he's trying to make it romantic right. and therefore it is not. Yeah. 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 It's not authentic anymore. Yeah. And then we go into the slap montage. <laughs> Stop it. And I feel like it's like that. It's like he actually regresses in this. Is that he got her the the one with the the slap in the room? That's the farthest he ever got. Yeah. And then he never got quite that far again. And now it's less and less and less. And she's slapping him earlier and earlier. And and the way they did this is every time they were on a set somewhere, she she slapped the water. <laughs> you know, because just they did it at every location. And when they started, Bill said, "Yeah, just full on hit me. It's fine." And by the end. Another choice Bill Murray was regretting because he was sore. Um, and I think at this moment, as Bill Murray has failed to get the woman that he loves, is a good time to end part one of our exploration of Groundhog Day. We will be right back here at Gobbler Snob again <laughs> to continue repeating through this thing. And of course, we'd love to hear what you think. You can search for the show on Facebook. Just do a search for The Cinephiles. We're Cine underscore Files on Twitter. We're The Cinephiles Podcast on Instagram. You can subscribe to the show at all the usual places. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube. Leave your comments on YouTube. Please leave your reviews on Apple Podcasts. The reviews have fallen off a little bit lately. And once again, we'd love to get some of those. Those five-star reviews are my favorite ones. I'd like to get some more of those. You could buy or stream Groundhog Day on cinephiles.net along with every other film we've ever reviewed. And you can support the show at patreon.com slash the cinephiles. Uh, John, how would people reach you? You can always find me at the Roca says on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok, the Outlaw Nation on Twitch, my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash John Roca says, and my other podcasts, the Geek Buddies, uh, the uh, Hot Mike. Um, yeah, and those are my podcasts. There you go. That's my life. <laughs> and it is hopefully not repeating the same day over and over again. No. Um, and of course you can reach me at SR Morris on Twitter, SR Morris one on Instagram. And I think that is it for this week. And we will be back next time to conclude our exploration of Groundhog Day. <laughs>